This podcast covers true crime cases that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, I'm turning my sound back on. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, and I don't have an echo. Yes, hooray. Yay. Cool. Well, hey, everyone. You're listening to Malice and Mocktails, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Katie, and I have my sister, Emily, with me again. Hey, Em. Hi. Good to talk to everyone. I was going to say see everyone. Good to talk to everyone again. (laughs) Awesome. So um, this is episode five, and I know that I said last week I was going to go with something not so murdery. But I came across this case and kind of fell down a rabbit hole and decided I wanted to go ahead and share it with you guys because it's kind of bonkers. So this week's case is about the horrible murders of Dorsey Bowman and Philip Loyce by a pair of terrible 20-something humans who basically wanted to just get rich quick. So before I get into this case, I do want to show some love to one of um, uh, podcasts I've been listening to lately, and it's called In the Nick of Crime, and it's hosted by Courtney and Michelle. They are hilarious, and I love how they narrate their episodes and their banter. It's, it's super fun. And they also sprinkle in throughout their true crime episodes um, what they call scoops and lore where they cover creepy and just kind of weird things. And I, I love it. Um, so definitely check them out everywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. So Emily, let's get into this crazy bananas case. Um, like I can't even with these fools that killed poor Bowman and Lois. It's just ridiculous. So here we go. Um, it was a really cold morning on February 15th, 1940. Um, We're in Detroit, so you better believe it's freaking cold. Um, Detroit police were called to a local dump in Macomb County, Michigan, after some school children discovered what they thought was a body. And for some quick contest, or wow, quick context, Macomb County is a few clicks north of Detroit, which is in the southeast part of the state. So police responded to the call and the scene they came across would haunt them for the rest of their lives, I imagine anyway. The mutilated and charred body of Dorsey Bowman was found wrapped in oil-soaked newspapers and blankets laying on a heap of garbage. Bowman would be one of two victims in a twisted murder-for-profit scheme executed by two terrible humans that decided it was a good idea to take the lives of these men. The second victim was 24-year-old Philip Loist. And these fools who committed these crimes um, were John Cassop and John Kursawa. And these two guys were in their early, early 20s. Like, they were probably 21, 22 at the time of uh, these events. And Cassop was a cab driver And I don't know what Kurosawa was doing or if he was even working. Um, But in short, these 20-somethings cooked up a murder-for-profit scheme in which they would basically falsely answer ads where someone was selling their car 
go for a test drive, take them back to their rented murder house and kill them. And then dispose of the bodies. Right? right? It's fucking disgusting. I really like the name Murder House. I'm sorry. (laughs) I do too. I don't know why. Okay, so Kathup, Kathup and and what's the other one's name? Uh, Kursawa. Kursawa. Sorry, I keep thinking cassowary, like the bird. Um, <laughs> they both. I mean, they don't look like nightmare people. They don't look creepy. They don't look sketchy. They're just two normal dudes. Yeah. Yeah, two normal kids, and they. I don't even know. I don't know why. Well, we can we can talk more about that as we move along, but it's just it's yeah. bonkers. So before I dive more into this case, I do want to give some information and background on Bowman and Lois, our two victims. So Dorsey E. Bowman was born on June 4th, 1905 in New Lebanon, Ohio, to Joseph and Eliza Bowman. At the time of his death, he lived at 450 Brainerd Avenue in Detroit. And Google Maps kind of made me sad because I think his house is no longer there. Uh, like there's a parking lot and a, like a new construction, like new build where it says the addresses. So I don't know. And he was employed by the Midwest Central Railroad as a railroad fireman. And I'm pretty sure it was the Midwest Central. Um, his death certificate only said MCRR. And a quick Google search of that uh, brought up the Midwest uh, Central. So if anyone knows otherwise, let me know. I'd, I'd be interested to, to hear what that was. And I don't think he was married. Um, I didn't come across a marriage certificate or anything like that. And he was just 34 at the time of his death. And then um, Philip Gordon Loist, our second victim, was born in Electric Township, Ontario, Canada, on January 29th, 1915, to Harold and Irene Sharp. And I had to look up Electric Township because that's a badass name for a town. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if you're looking at a map of Michigan, it looks like a left-handed mitten if you're holding your hand up in front of you. So palm side out. Palm and... away from you. We yes. <laughs> I held it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was holding my hand wrong. So left hand up, palm away from you. Yes. Um, and Detroit is in the lower part of the mitten thumb. <laughs> and Ontario borders this area. Um, So Electric Township is almost directly like due east of Detroit across Lake St. Clair. And Philip married a woman named Genevieve Wallace in 1938. And at the time of his murder, Philip worked as a mechanic for the Canfield Motor Sales at 2966 uh, Gratiot Avenue in Detroit. And I don't think the original building is still there. I compared what is on Google Maps to what's on the old Sanborn fire insurance maps. Like the footprints are similar. So either either what's there has like swallowed the original building or the original building was probably demolished. Um, but I'll post I'll post pictures and maps and all that fun stuff on my Patreon page so you guys can check that out. And I don't have tiers or anything, so that'll be free. Um, so everybody can have access to that. 
So let's get into this bananas case. According to an account by Cassip and Kurzawa, our perpetrators, um, according according to them, as accounted by like several newspaper articles, here is what proceeds to happen to our dear Bowman and Lois. So Dorsey Bowman was reported as being ill and needed money, probably to help cover his medical bills. So on February 1st, 1940, he advertised his car for sale and Kursawa answers the ad. And Kursawa likely took Bowman and his car for a test drive and then under some sort of ruse takes them to Cassip's parents' house over on Macon Street. And his parents were obviously not there. Like, I mean, if they were, like, how fucking bold can you be? Right? Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, they're either, the parents are either complicit or they're out of their mind with Alzheimer's or dementia or something. Maybe. Uh, Or just terrible parents that just don't care. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like they're enabling their children. Um, so once Bowman and Kursawa arrive uh, in the car, um, he leads Bowman inside where Cassip lay in wait with a pistol. And um, Cassip proceeds to fatally shoot Bowman. And this is bananas. So they put Bowman's body in his own car, like in the trunk, drive it to the dump, saturate his body with kerosene and set him on fire like these guys are they're fucking monsters um and so his body would have to be id'd through dental records so he was already dead before they put him in the car right yes yeah they shot him they fatally shot him oh my gosh yeah and meanwhile these two fools forged Bowman's name on a bill of sale and in turn sell his car for about $385, which is roughly $8,000 in today's money. And what do they do with this quote unquote hard earned money? Sarcasm. Um, They rent and furnish a house located at 2051 McLean street. And this house is one of several nearly identical um, craftsman fungalo type houses um, on McLean Street. Like there's, like the ha- the street is lined with them. It's it's kind of neat to see. And this area is about six miles north of downtown Detroit. Um, the house it's pretty cute in my opinion. It's got a full porch with um, four wooden tapered columns atop some brick pillars with concrete steps that lead um, from the the sidewalk like up to the porch and I think the dormer is like my favorite feature <laughs> um I'm, I'm kind of surprised that this house is still standing um a couple of them it looks like they've been demolished um and they're like there's a couple of vacant lots unfortunately but hopefully somebody will make repairs um and like this neighborhood in my opinion it, it strikes me as more of like a blue collar like working class neighborhood versus um versus an affluent yeah mm-hmm. yeah just kind of given the size of the houses and um just the style and that's just basing it on um uh style and kind of area um but i i mean i don't know a whole lot 
about Detroit in the 1940s. Um, so that's just my my initial thoughts there. Okay. Yeah. Um, so victim number two, our dear Philip Loist, also needed money because he and his wife were expecting a baby around this time. So just like Bowman, he puts his car up for sale. And at first blush, like this in Bowman's ad kind of caught me off guard, but I had to remind myself that this is 1940 when all this happened. So like by all accounts, Detroit was a big city at this time with a population of about 1.6 million. And they had an established public transit system. So they had buses, streetcars, commuter rail. And I would think Bowman and Lois would probably like utilize public transit if they were without a car. And this is also me assuming that they didn't have a second vehicle already. Well, they could have a bicycle too. Oh um, yeah. Totally forgot about that. But would they have, would they have a second car? Cause I would imagine that a second car would be super expensive. I mean, cars are $300 already. That's, that's a lot of cash. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. Um, and I had talked to, to Jason and for those that are new here, Jason is my husband. And I feel like, I don't know, like I ask him all the time, random stuff. Cause I just think that he's going to magically know. <laughs> um, he, he was around during the 19th. He was around in the no. 1940s. No, <laughs> no, no. Um, but um, he's just, yeah, he knows random stuff like about cars and stuff. So I don't know. But um like he had thought that uh, like the average person, like, I mean, people may have ha- had two cars, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but I also, I'm not sure. This is, again, this is 1940. And I just kind of thought, Hey, like cars are um, real, I guess maybe relatively like becoming common, especially in Detroit, which like the big three are there. Like, I think it's Ford, Chrysler, and I think GM. Um, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, you're right. Cars are clearly not cheap at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, at any rate, uh, Loist, uh, puts an ad in the paper advertising his car for sale and Kurosawa once again answers the ad. He and Loist, uh, drove around for a bit. Loist is probably like trying to point out the positive attributes of the car, like trying to sell this car because he needs the money. And Kurosawa continues with this ruse uh, by taking them both to the murder house on McLean Street, telling Lois that he wants his wife to see it. Perhaps this is how he got Bowman to Cassip's parents' house. And spoiler alert, Kurosawa does not have a wife. (laughs) Um, And Cassip, like before, was waiting in the house with a pistol which we later find out Kurosawa purchased um, for probably for this purpose. Um, So once Loist gets into the house, he's ambushed and Kurosawa and Kassip take him to the cellar, shoot him twice in the back and once in the head and toss him in a shallow grave they dug earlier. And they also uh, cover him with quicklime, I guess, to help um, accelerate the... Getting rid of the like, doesn't it? Emily, you're a chemist. Doesn't that? <laughs> isn't that what that does? 
Yeah, quicklime should um, start eating away at the eating the way at the flesh. Um, I think quicklime is a base, and um, but I really don't think it's gonna work that quickly. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so same as Bowman, Loist's name was forged on a bill of sale, and his car was purchased for three hundred twenty-five dollars by somebody else. Um, again, that's a little less than eight grand in today's dollars. And don't get me wrong, like that's a good chunk of money, but like, come on, Cassip needs to just work overtime at his cab job or get take more fares. I mean, he's probably making. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. All right. No googling. No quick Google searches for me. Oh no. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. We had technical difficulties. Emily was looking up quick lime, and it. I it is I'm... a base, like I said. <laughs> and they would have needed to add some water to really get the party started. <laughs> um, but, I mean, yeah, it's going to start decomposing the body. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be gross. Ew. But, gross. I mean, it's going to take it's gonna take a while. Quicklime was probably not their best option chemically. Maybe that's but, all they could afford or they could find. If that was probably the easiest to get because quicklime would be pretty easy to get. Okay. And it's not and it's not super sketchy either. So it's gotcha. it's used for a lot of it's used for a lot of purposes. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um so I think I was talking about um how Cassip just needs to get oh, he has a job, but like he needs to be yeah riding doing his job be a cab driver right um get out there and make that money Cassip. dang it i know stop killing people jesus start Ugh. your own cab company right Rude. yeah Ugh. okay so kursawa and Cassip proceed to spend this quote-unquote hard-earned money um on like some fancy ass- no fancy ass clothes Oh my god. <laughs> What's the point of fancy clothes if they can't have liquor and drugs? I don't know. Because maybe oh. that's not their they don't want that stuff. They want first they need the they want yes. the clothes, then they need the wives, then the alcohol. What? So they're are they gonna buy wives? I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. Maybe prostitutes. I don't oh know. Oh my god. Okay. That's what happens next. You get the house, you get the you get the car, you get the clothes, then you live in the high life, then eventually you need, I don't know, political power, maybe. I don't know. Wow. I don't, I don't I, know. These guys yeah. are pretty petty. I don't I don't know. So okay, so they've got their they have their fancy house, they have their fancy clothes, but they don't have any more money because of this crazy lavish lifestyle. So these fools end up, they're not able to pay their rent the following month. So um, they end up being evicted. And Cassip actually had a potential deal with a car salesman, uh, but it fell through because the salesman was suspicious of him and didn't think he was a quote unquote bona fide prospect to sell him a car. Thank God, because who knows how long this charade would have gone on killing all these people for their cars. Well, eventually, if they were selling to used car salesmen, eventually, like, 
all of the salesmen around town would have been like, hey, you're selling me an awful lot of cars and you haven't bought any. Where are you getting these cars from? Mm, maybe. Maybe. But how can they prove they didn't buy them? True. Because they, they have the bill of sale. They have the bill of sale with the original owner's signature. Mm-hmm. And if they stuck with single people, maybe they would have been okay, but they went for somebody with a well, yeah, and, kid who were going to report them missing. Yes, and that's exactly what she did. Um, so, uh, Kurosawa and Kassip, like I said, they're evicted from the murder house, at which point the rental agent soon finds the graves in the cellar and calls the police. What do you mean um, graves? So Wasn't they, it- they dug multiple. There were two. Oh my god. Like long before they even picked out their victims allegedly. So they're just prepared. They're just ready. They're like bring it. We're come on. Yeah, like they're they're clearly it's all premeditated. It was not I mean, I guess technically you could call it a a crime of opportunity. Um but they're still I mean they're they're still clearly planning and this is the end goal and they have to get rid of the body somehow and the graves were in the basement just to make it convenient yeah there's probably i mean obviously it's a dirt dirt floor or ground whatever could you imagine sleeping in the room above no where you have a dead body decomposing ew yeah yeah it's gross they're gross. That's very gross. So the the rental agent finds the graves and they, she calls the police and they proceed to excavate the cellar and they find Philip's body. And this is this is basically what leads to the downfall of Kassip and Kursawa. And um, these fools also had, I think, they got they were arrested previously for breaking and entering and some other stuff. And so the uh, I think Cassip had a mugshot, and so the rental agent was able to identify Cassip from his mugshot. And so, I think at that point there was probably um, a warrant or something out for Cassip's um, arrest because, like, this dude—he's so fucking arrogant. Like, I, I couldn't determine what actually caused this to happen, but the papers alleged that. Cassip sometime later after all this happened he just kind of willingly strode into the police station and was like hey I heard y'all are looking for me like what <laughs> wow how charismatic and crazy do you have to be to be like hey um you're looking for me but I'm innocent I have the highest charisma check my neck check my net 20 like what yeah like and of course, he was taken into custody like right away. Of and inter- they, they interrogated him on a daily basis, sometimes like for 32 hours at a time. Oh my and, God. And like, but he would not crack. Like, he was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. And like, so they really needed Kursawa to flip on him so they could get a confession. But Kursawa had by now fled to Pennsylvania to hide out with family. And so the Pennsylvania State Police, uh, I think the, the Detroit cops must have told them, like, hey, we, this guy has family there. Um, you know, keep, please just keep a lookout for him. 
and they were actually able to apprehend him near Imperial, Pennsylvania, which I didn't, I didn't look that up on a map, but um, I'm also not sure how they apprehended him. Like, I kind of wish that it was like a stupid mistake, like a minor <laughs> vehicle infraction, like a tail light or just something. Karmic something justice. Like, like something dumb, but I couldn't find out like what actually, like why they ended up arresting him unless it was just because they knew he was, he was a potential suspect in this, these murders and they were able to find him and pick him up. Um, so the two officers from the Detroit PD traveled to Pennsylvania with fingerprint records to confirm his identity, which it was confirmed and he's arrested and they take his ass back to Detroit. And meanwhile, the Detroit police were able to compare the bullets found in Bowman and Loyce's bodies, um, which were confirmed to be from the same gun. And then they were able to compare those bullets to the pistol found on Kursawa. And it was confirmed that this was in fact the murder weapon. I can't believe he didn't throw the gun in like a river or the lake or something when he was fleeing to yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, he probably didn't think he was going to get caught. Throw it, throw it away. What are you doing? <laughs> yes. And so uh, Kursawa quickly confesses to the murders and upon being shown his signed confession, Cassip breaks down and finally is like okay like here's everything that happened um and like i mentioned like these guys had a rap sheet um i think it was like for more like quote-unquote petty stuff like breaking and entering um but cassip like he is so arrogant after he was initially arrested he apparently gave written messages intended for his stepdad to a fellow inmate to be smuggled out the inmate, who obviously was an informant, um, turned them over to the police, and the notes asked for help in getting an attorney, and the informer said that Cassip told him he was guilty, but they would never prove it. And, like, I also kind of think that, like, Cassip and Kursawa were just plain, like, bad influences on each other. Like, I bet they just, like, they fed off of each other's just bad energy. Probably. That's how um, they went from breaking and entering to murder. Yeah. Yeah. And like Kursawa's mom had actually tried to break them up, like uh, to end uh, Kursawa's association with Cassup for years, according to some of the newspapers I found. So like she saw something that was not good in this person, like corrupting her son. Jeez. Yeah. Um, so as I was piecing this case together, um, I kind of struggled to wrap my mind around why these two guys, like what their train of thought was like committing these crazy crimes. Like they admitted to killing both Loist and Bowman so they could steal their cars, sell them with falsified registration and other paperwork for like an equivalent of $8,000 today, which again, that is a ch good chunk of money, but like, come on. Um, but it's not worth life in prison. No. And like, instead of just paying the two to $300 then for the cars and just trying to resell it for more, like these fools think, Hey, 
why don't we just murder the car owner and steal their car so we save a little bit of money what the fuck (laughs) um like these two they kind of remind me a little bit of nathan leopold and richard loeb and not to get too off track but leopold and loeb were also uh young men like in their early 20s who committed a really really horrible crime in 1924 um they like trigger warning they basically wanted to pull off what they considered like the perfect crime just to see if they could do it and they ended up um murdering a a young child and um i'm gonna i'll i'm gonna cover them at some point so we'll you know we'll get more into that case but like mainly their their personalities um similar to uh Kassip and kursawa potentially just seemed to like feed off of one another and just kind of fueled whatever this you know narcissistic arrogant you know oh i can get away with anything it just seemed really destructive um and i think one and i don't know if it was this was the case with with our guys but like leopold and Loeb, i think one of them was a dominant personality and the other was more submissive so it's like the one is is clearly in control and the other one just kind of goes along with it whether they have some sort of infatuation whether it's platonic or romantic i don't know um but we'll like i said i'll cover those guys um in a in a separate episode and go more into that case because it is really it's it's a terrible crime but it is pretty fascinating just just how they how they operated um so back to back to kathip and kursawa the police would also find a torture rack in the attic of the murder house and they questioned Kasip and Kursawa if they had uh, future crimes planned. And according to an article written on April 8th, 1940, in the Zanesville Signal, Kasip acknowledged that there was indeed a rack and it was installed for the purpose of torture, but they denied ever having used it. Because that makes it better, right? I mean, they hadn't used it yet. (laughs) But... I mean, they put it in your favorite part of the house, the cute little dormer. I know. They ruined my dormer. God. Why would they need a torture rack, though? I mean, they've already got guns. They've already burned somebody after after they were dead. So they're not, uh, I guess maybe they're working their way up. Like, they're they're gross. They're sadists. Um, And granted, you know, if you're into bdsm on a consensual level that's one thing but if you're just being cruel and just terrible to people that's a whole other that's correct. situation now um so in the cellar of the murder house like i mentioned um philip loist's grave was actually repaired well before he had even been selected as a victim and a second grave was found right next to it. Oh my gosh. So they're just they're just ready for anything. Well, yeah, it's like it's clearly premeditated. Like they're like, okay, we're gonna go, you know, steal another car, so we better be ready to dispose of the body. And I don't know if well, no, because they, they killed Bowman before they rented the murder house. So I mean th- then that to me that says that 
you know, they, they uh, were planning to steal another car because they had another grave. Maybe after, maybe during the first uh, body transfer, maybe they had too many close calls um, mm-hmm. before they left the burned body, which is why they wanted a murder house and they were going to bury the bodies in the house. So maybe maybe they had too many, like maybe as they were getting the body into the car, somebody somebody might have talked to them and they were like, oh, you know, this is just a carpet. It's just a pile of newspapers. It's This is nothing. Don't look at this. <laughs> oh, my God. Maybe. You're right. I didn't think about that. So maybe they just wanted to avoid having to leave the house yeah. at all. And just hide the bodies in the basement. Yeah, just come on into our home. And then we're going to take you down to the creepy basement. And then we're going to murder you. And it's all going to be fine. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Fine for us, the murderers, that is. Not for you. (laughs) These poor guys. I know. Like, ugh. So, Cassip and Kursawa... As I mentioned, they're they're both arrested. Um, they do confess to both murders, and Chief Assistant Prosecutor William Dowling recommends first degree murder for the mur- for the killing of Philip Boyce. But in the murder of Dorsey Bowman, that was actually held in what's called I think it's pronounced abeyance, which I think means it's just on hold basically. So I think they needed they didn't have enough either physical evidence or something prevented them from from moving the case forward so they couldn't at that time um uh prosecute them for for his murder just yet um but wait there's more before we get into their arraignment because these fools are charged with several other murders what so So Kassip and Kursawa and nine other men were suspected in a string of 15 holdups and two shootings in the, in the Detroit area. And Kursawa was said to have three murder charges against him. Um, in addition to Bowman and Loist, he was also charged with, um, well, actually, I guess he wasn't, I guess we'll just go with Loist because I think Bowman, like I said, was on hold. But anyway. He was charged with the death of Edward Breedy, a 59-year-old grocery store worker during a holdup. And then Kursawa had a cousin named Leo who apparently confessed, but also implicated Kursawa of two other shootings. That of Mike uh, Kozorski in a store holdup that yielded nothing. And Alois Thurman in a breaking and entering that netted like $37, which was probably maybe 100 bucks in today's money maybe a little more so um Kassip and Kursawa are eventually arraigned um and they'd stand trial for the murder of Philip Loyce like I mentioned and again these two fools so they plead guilty to the murders um to, I guess just to get the um lesser well not a lesser charge but instead of having to um you know, have to go through the whole process. Um, it would only take a jury 30 minutes to come back with a guilty verdict. And Michigan doesn't have the death penalty at this time. So the maximum sentence is life in prison. So that is indeed what they get. 
And Judge McKay Skillman, who presided over their trial, um, lamented that Michigan law provides no death penalty. So he was pretty pissed and really wanted them to, to hang or fry or however they would have done it back then. But they didn't. So in late April of 1940, Kursawa was taken to a hospital psych ward after the guards found two suicide notes and an improvised, improvised noose in his cell. And one of the wrote, wow, one of the notes read, quote, as I sit here and think of the miserable future in store for me, I just can't help but take the other way out rather than spend the rest of my life in prison. Like, okay, your miserable future, like you stole the life, two lives that we know of. And, you know, the poor little baby of Lois is going to have to grow up without a dad. Right, like if you okay. if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. I Prison know. is a punishment. He's such a coward. I um, mean, uh, he shouldn't have done it in the first place. Like, prison is not supposed to be fun. It's a punishment. Oh, so about four years later, um, in May of 1944, Kurosawa again, he actually tries to escape from Marquette prison where he was serving his time and he was shot by the guards. He and a fellow inmate proceed to scale a 20 foot prison wall that's topped with a 10 foot tall screen and barbed wire. So Kursawa had fashioned some sort of ladder uh, with a hook to fit the screening and the wall. Um, and so he, as he's like scaling the wall, of course he's ordered to stop and he ignored it. So the guards opened fire because that's what they have to do. And Kursawa was wounded in the head and the leg. But the newspaper article that I read indicated he was in serious condition, but he did survive. And his buddy, who was going to escape with him, was just a, an, I don't think, it wasn't, um, it wasn't Kassab because he was at a different prison, I believe. But his buddy, you know, saw that he got shot and he's like, oh, I, I give up don't shoot me like he didn't want to sort of do that fate either so he's like fuck this like i'm done and so he's taken into custody and um uh i didn't find any inv like i didn't find out when kursawa died i'm sure he died in prison um because i don't think they were el ever eligible for parole and Cassup served his time at the state prison of southern michigan in jackson and he died in April of 1993 in prison. And according to a book titled Boneyards Detroit Underground by Richard Bach, his funeral was sparse with only a handful of inmates in attendance. And he is buried on the prison grounds. I, I didn't go into Kassab or Kursawa's past because I honestly couldn't find much about them. Like, other than their ages and that they committed these terrible murders, I really came up empty. Um, like, I looked on Ancestry and newspapers. So, like, if anybody has ever heard of this case and knows anything, let me know. Because, like, I randomly came across um, an article that mentioned the, the murder. And I, like I said, I kind of went down a rabbit hole from there. So I started 
you know, looking up their names. And then it led me to different articles. Some of them, sometimes it was um, like front page news. Other times it was just follow-up articles. But um, like that's, that's what has kind of happened with the past couple of cases. Like there are instances where I'll be um, looking up one thing, like say like I use newspaper archive um, for my job, my day job. And I'll be looking up something for that and I'll come across like a random, you know, article about a crime of some kind. And also I'll bookmark it for later for the podcast. And um, this was one of those cases. And I just was like, wow, like this case is crazy. And I, I, I was really imp- like surprised I was able to find so much information, like just through the newspaper articles, which was kind of cool. Um. So yeah, that's the case wow. of yeah Dorsey Dorsey Bowman and Philip Loist. That's insane! I can't believe he was able to make some kind of like hook and ladder thing. That's really oh, I know. It's really creative and kind of impressive. Um, I've yeah. I've I've been to the uh, uh, state prison museum in Huntsville, Texas. And I highly recommend um, prison museums. The inmates are really incredibly creative and innovative, um, especially with the lack of materials they have to work with. I really wish prisoners could use their innovations for good like they would be the millionaires that they want to be if they would use their creativity for good because some of the the things that they've made are so really just impressive and it's just like why can't you use your powers for good right yes yeah i've i've i think i've been to that museum um and you're right, like just some of the weapons that are con- confiscated just I like really I can't. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> yes. The one one of the weapons that one of the homemade weapons that stood out the most to me was a um a, a knife made out of um paper and fecal matter. Like that's it, just it's gross. What? It's super gross, but it's really impressive. Like, why would you? I mean, I guess I understand why you would come up with that, but why those materials? I don't know. I think they like it. Like, there's, you know, there's documentation when you're at the museum of, you know, kind of how the process kind of works. And kind of some, sometimes they have the reason why the inmates made these weapons because you know they have to either protect themselves or they're you know incredibly violent criminals Mm -hmm. um either either one of the two is why people in prison make those um and it's just like yeah no uh paper and and fecal matter make really good uh strong strong items wow yeah that's so gross (laughs) with that with that note (laughs) (laughs) um thank you everybody for listening this week i (laughs) 
and let me know what you thought. Um, as always, if you have any case suggestions, let me know. I do have several cases kind of lined up, but if, um, if you do have one and I, I can do enough research, you know, I'm definitely happy to put that in the mix. And I have a form in my link tree, which can be found on my Instagram profile and Facebook, which I'm at Malice and Mocktails. You can also email me at maliceandmocktails at gmail.com. And I'm sad to say I don't have a mocktail recipe for you this week. Um, Emily and I are at our stepdad's house dealing with um, some stuff with our family. And just um, I didn't have time to come up with that um, for uh, this week. But I'll try to have one for you next week. Or I might try to post some uh, on the various social media pages so you can look for that um, I am drinking just a coca-cola which is always simple and fun um, one of my favorite uh, go-to's is actually a Heineken zero not sponsored in any way it's just it's one of my favorites it actually it's ta- I think it tastes really good and it um, at least according to Heineken it, it, it is truly zero proof where um, some other like near beers I've had um, do you say that, that they have like zero or a uh, 0.05% like alcohol, which I mean, for me personally, it doesn't bother me, but um, just as a, if you're looking for like a truly zero proof uh, beer uh, or NA beer, um, Heineken's pretty good in my opinion. So with that said, um, again, I hope everyone enjoyed the episode and um, if you would, if you do, if you did like the episode, um, definitely rate and review on Spotify and Apple podcasts. That'll help us a lot. Just so we know, um, you know, what you liked, what you didn't like, how we can improve all that fun stuff. So I hope everybody has a great week and we will see you next Monday. Bye. Bye.